very merry on my day. A merry, merry on birthday. A merry, merry on birthday to us. Welcome to Detour to Neverland, where you are the author of your own Disney story. There's a lot of satisfaction in developing ideas into realities. And you can find magic in your everyday life. If you do what you really want to do, you feel like you're playing. How can you write your first chapter today? Dreams are how we figure out where we want to go. Life is how we get there. I'm headed this way. We're your hosts, Brendan and Catherine. Welcome back to Detour to Neverland. Today is episode number 249. Thank you so much for joining us. We are continuing our storytelling series today, and today we're talking about the Mad Tea Party. But before we get into that, Catherine, do you have anything that you want to say to me? Well, based off of today's episode, I guess I have to tell you very merry unbirthday. But I cannot do the same to you because it is your birthday. It is. So happy birthday, Catherine, the better half of Detour to Neverland. So happy we could do this on your birthday. We're actually recording before, but... It's okay. It's the thought that counts. Yep. So we're going to go to California Grill for your birthday. Speaking into the future, how was it? Was it delicious? I sure hope so. I hope I leave and I feel fat and happy. Good. We can hopefully make that happen. (laughs) Uh, The other thing that we want to mention beforehand is that you share a birthday with Disney's California Adventure. I do. Who knew? So California DCA turns 20 years old today. It does. Yeah, it opened in 2001. So hopefully for its 20th birthday, it will get a opened Avengers campus hopefully soon. That would be good for everybody. Very merry and birthday to all of us if that happens. Exactly. So let's go ahead and get into our episode for today. If you are new to the storytelling series, our goal here is to break down these different Disney attractions and just point out different things about the ride that would help you experience them differently, maybe help you feel a different emotion, just get a deeper appreciation for it. This is one of those. I think there's beauty in simplicity sometimes. I can agree with that. It it doesn't have to be super over the top with every detail imaginable for it to have a story or at least an interesting history, I'd say. Yeah, and so... Some of the key facts for this attraction is an opening day attraction for Disneyland, July 17th, 1955. It was also an opening day attraction at Magic Kingdom and Walt Disney World on October 1st, 1971. It is currently located in five of the Disney theme parks, not located in Shanghai. However, they do have their own like spinning ride that would be similar to the Mad Tea Party, but of course, it's based on Winnie the Pooh, and you get to spin in honey pots, Which sounds pretty cool. It sounds pretty cool. I mean, I don't know if the theme, like the spinning theme, quite fits as well with Winnie the Pooh as it does with the teacups, but I feel like it's probably just as cute. Yeah. So let's go ahead and hit some of like the historical facts or some of the background on this so we get a, a better understanding of what's at stake here. Yeah, so if we think about the just the ride and the mechanics itself, um, it's fairly simple. The ride falls into a category of carnival rides that are called flat rides. 
So I've never heard of this category before. You know, we've talked about dark rides, you know, about like roller coasters, but this is its own category, it turns out, this flat ride category. Um, it's a very simple concept. It's basically just anything that spins around a central or like a circular platform. So alien swirling saucers would be a flat ride. Tomaters, Dumbo. Dumbo, Tomaters, Junkyard Jamboree, all flat rides. Yes. And of course, if you think about like your typical carnival, um, other things that come to mind might be like a tilt-a-whirl, a scrambler. That was my favorite as a kid. You like I, the scrambler? Oh, yeah. It's just thrilling enough to like make your stomach churn, but it's safe, I feel like. I mean, I don't know if any carnival ride is safe, but in my like 10-year-old brain, the scrambler was... I think I also have to preface with that we come from a very different background when it comes to like carnival or fair type attractions because where we grew up outside of Nashville I had like the best county fair ever. Oh yeah, it so was massive. I don't know if other people experienced a lot of these other attractions. Maybe they did. Maybe you got a good state fair, a good county fair, city fair. I feel like these are these are staples because you also have like the swings, which I love, the Gravitron, um, like the flying bobs, the one that sticks out to me is like a Himalayas kind of ride. I love the Himalayan. So, you know, there's lots of rides that fall into this category. And of course, you know, when you think about these rides, they are typically intended for younger riders, but they have high speeds and like they disorient you because you're spinning so quickly. So, I mean, it makes sense that with it being such a staple and with it being a family-friendly ride, that Walt would want to include this in Disneyland. Yeah, and so there's a lot of talks about, you know, when Walt was doing the research for Disneyland, that a flat ride would be something that he would see almost everywhere that he went. He would see it at the Beachfront Pier Little Amusement Park. He would see it at Borderline Theme Parks, I guess, in that time period, if you're looking up to. So he would... He would have experienced and seen a lot of these things, and they were popular for a reason. And they're still popular for a reason because they're approachable and kids love them. Yeah, and then you just add, you know, some Disney magic, and is that much better? So the actual mechanics of this particular flat ride, they have three different small turntables, and all of these turntables rotate clockwise, and then you have the bigger turntable that is rotating counterclockwise. And you can actually pick up on this if you actually, you know, if you're in line and you watch the way that it's moving, you can kind of see the way that this is happening. And I think it plays into just that spinning effect. You know, you're not just going, you're not just spinning and going one way, but you're kind of spinning two ways at once if that makes sense. It makes you feel like you're going doubly fast if you choose to spin in your teacup. Yes. And then, of course, it has the 18 teacups, and you get to control how fast it is that you spin. And you can turn the wheel both left and right. But isn't one way easier than the other? I I feel like it's different each time I get into one. Sometimes I feel like you're if I pull it right, it's going faster. Sometimes I feel like it's going left. Maybe it's just which arm you've worked out more recently. <laughs> it's easier to pull that direction. Yeah. But I mean, I think that plays into the overall guest experience is that you get to control it. Because again, 
if you're thinking about a family-friendly ride, you're taking into consideration little kids, parents, teenagers, grandparents. And to me, even though this can be somewhat intimidating, I think it is rideable or the rideability could fit into any of those categories. I agree. And, you know, I want to mention neither of us are people who get motion sickness. So maybe I don't want to sound insensitive, but we (laughs) we can spin as fast as we want and we really don't have any consequences. I hope that that stays true for all of our lives. Probably won't be. But as of right now, we don't have any of those problems. I know other people like can't can't even think about getting on this attraction, but we're good on here. But I think it's important to weave in some of that storytelling right here about that it is disorienting, but if you think about what this is based on, and we're going to talk about this later, but if you think about when Alice approaches and finds this tea party going on, she is super disoriented. She has no idea what's going on, and she's got two huge personalities yelling at her and singing at her and... First telling her that she's rude. And then loving her. And then loving her right after. It is a super confusing and whirlwind experience that can be applied to the attraction itself as well. So we typically talk about, you know, which perspective are you in or like which character are you meant to be? Do you think that falls into this? Like, are you supposed to feel disoriented or confused? like maybe Alice did at the Mad Tea Party? I think so, because even if you look at, you know, if this is an opening day attraction, and if you look at other opening day attractions, particularly in Fantasyland, they're all based on, like, you are Peter Pan or you are Snow White. And I think it's fair to assume you are Alice in this situation, or at the very least, you are a guest at the Tea Party. Mm -hmm. And it's a very confusing, ruckus chaotic environment there, of course. Yeah, I think that's fair. I like that analysis. So to kind of play into the whole spinning, I found this fact and I thought it was interesting, but it mentioned that in 2004, Disney actually had to alter the ride to make it harder to spin because I guess a guest slipped and fell out of a teacup. I don't quite understand how that works because they do have the door now. I know the doors weren't originally there when the ride opened. They just used like a little rope to tie off like where you get in and out. So I don't know. Maybe that's why they make such a fuss about you have to sit down and everything. But they made it harder to spin. Of course, other guests complained and then they brought it back to the easier to spin version. But I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I don't know if it's something where like you like stood up kind of like slipped out as a weird verb. Yeah. So I don't know what exactly that entails, but hopefully they were okay. Sounds like they were. Let us spin. (laughs) Hashtag let us spin. Um, So when thinking about other original ideas and just concepts for this attraction, what we actually got is more like a watered down version of some of the things that were originally thrown out. So originally... The ride featured things like a massive tea party table centerpiece. So again, if you kind of think about the movie and what that table 
looked like. That would be very fitting. Um, we also had things like, you know, large Mad Hatters and a March Hare and other characters. And I can agree with the Mad Hatter and the March Hare. But when you start throwing in other characters like the Caterpillar and the Cheshire Cat, I don't think they necessarily play into the tea party because they're not there. They don't partake in the festivities. Yeah, I mean, that's true. They don't they're not at the unbirthday party at all. So, I mean, I think that's fair to you need to limit it to it's like it's this scene from the movie. Do you wish we had the characters in the ride? Since you're the big Alice in Wonderland fan here, I mean, do you wish that they incorporated some more of that? One of the few. Not many people like Alice in Wonderland, I've learned. I love it. But uh, no, I just wish that Magic Kingdom had the dark ride like Disneyland does. Mm. I think that's the more appropriate approach is that you get the dark ride, you ride through on the Caterpillar Mm -hmm. in that instance. It is a wonderful dark ride. And so I don't necessarily want more characters at the tea party. Although I do, I want to see the March Hare and the Mad Hatter more. Just in the park? No, on Mad Tea Party. Oh, okay. Or I say more at all. Like I want yes. to see them. So I, I think that would be more appropriate if the Mad Hatter was like the center fixture or something. But then we get talking about all these different versions and it, it no, it's not one size fits all for all of the different versions that exist of this attraction. That's true. So I think the last kind of history ride mechanic storytelling part that plays into this is the music, because this is something that they actually took from the movie is that they are playing the instrumental version of A Very Marianne Birthday. So that does give you that same sense that you are there. I mean, we see this a lot with Disney attractions where the music enhances the experience. Yeah. And do you remember a couple of years ago when we went to the Halloween party and they were playing like techno music at the Mad Tea Party at the Magic Kingdom? Oh, it was so just odd. It was so strange. We actually met the Mad Hatter and Alice that night and we asked them about it. And they're like, yeah, we don't know. <laughs> they were not big fans. No, it was very strange. It was like an overlay that they were doing. I can't remember. Was it Christmas or Halloween? Oh, it had to be Halloween. Yeah, it was just some ticketed event. And it was strange. Yeah. It was just, you know, we always talk about it. Disneyland, when they do overlays, it's like, oh, Haunted Mansion Holiday. And Disney World gets an overlay. And it's techno music. It's like Winnie Hutt Jr. Chum Bucket. <laughs> SpongeBob reference for everybody. Yeah, which is very sad. But... The last kind of thing to talk about here, we love to talk about Imagineers or influential people who had an impact on the ride. And one name that stands out when looking at the tea party is Mary Blair. And she is someone who actually worked on the concept art for Alice in Wonderland. But of course, some of her more notable work is in It's a Small World. And the contemporary. And the contemporary. So I just think it's cool to kind of get to connect those dots and see that same kind of sphere of influence. Yeah. And it is a very short ride. It's only a minute and 30 seconds long, just enough to play that short part of A Very Merry Unbirthday. And that's pretty much it. I mean, do you think it ends too fast? I feel like when you're on the ride, it does 
feel like it's fairly fast. And I don't know if that ties into, you know, when we look at when they create these rides, you know, they were very intentional about how many people they could get through in a certain amount of time. You know, how many people can you fit in the teacups? How many teacups do you have? How long does it last? How long does it take to load? And I don't know if that's part of it, almost just like, you know, it can't go on forever because, you know, it's not like an Omnimover, if that makes sense. Maybe it has something to do with the fact that it is somewhat disorienting. And maybe you can't have people spin for much longer than a minute and 30 seconds. I do love how they have multiple exits as well. Yeah. <laughs> for this, because a lot of times you'll see people like, and they're so disoriented. It's like, just walk towards the side and you will find an exit. Well, it's kind of the same way for like Dumbo or the magic carpets. I wonder if that's also, again, just a way to get people out. Like, leave, get out, hurry, let us load more people. Mm -hmm. So other interesting things that have happened over the lifespan of Mad Tea Party is in honor of Disneyland's 50th anniversary, they added a golden teacup because they were celebrating, of course, its 50th anniversary as well of the attractions. So other attractions got the same treatment. There was a golden Dumbo, a golden uh, pirate ship on Peter Payne's flight, and a golden car on Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. So golden teacup. Where do you think that lives now? I don't know. In the archives somewhere? Yeah, I hope not like in John Stamos' backyard. I was literally <laughs> just about to say John Stamos might have it. He, I mean, I wouldn't put it past him. Because he has a Dumbo. He has a Dumbo. I think he has quite a few objects or items. I don't know if it's a golden one, though. In that same vein, you know, the other person who has a ton of Disneyland memorabilia is Drake Bell. Really? From Drake and Josh. Wow, that's cool. Drake Bell is a huge Disney fan. Big listener to this podcast, too. Oh, of course. Hey, Drake. Yeah. How you doing? Yeah. Well, can we get a Drake and Josh uh, reboot? Only in our dreams. Um, but do you think they're going to do something like that for Magic Kingdom's 50th? That is coming up. It is coming up. I mean, yeah, it's an opening day attraction for Magic Kingdom as well. You would hope that they would do something similar, but... In normal years, I would have said, yes, now I just don't know. It's hard to say. If things like that are going to happen. Fair enough. Unfortunately, fair enough. Um, in the Disneyland version, the teacups were relocated in 1983. So this ride actually used to sit where King Arthur's carousel sat, um, but it was moved to be closer to the Alice in Wonderland dark ride, which I think plays nicely to kind of put the two side by side. You can kind of, you know, have that full experience. Isn't that the way that we did it when we were in Disneyland? We did them back to back. Yeah. Yeah. Which is pretty fun. And you get beautiful views of the Matterhorn from right there as well, because you're kind of right in its shadow the at that point. Another big kind of staple of this attraction is that a lot of times that you will see characters experiencing this attraction. So a classic one would be like sometimes you'll see Cinderella or other princesses riding the carousel. But you can also find similar things. Alice, the Mad Hatter or the White Rabbit will occasionally ride this attraction. I don't think they do it nearly as much anymore. I've also seen a video of Belle and Beast 
riding the teacups. I don't know if it was Disneyland's version, but I have seen one of Belle and Beast. I don't know how Beast fit in one of those. I know. That's what I was thinking, too. I mean, it's sometimes we struggle to get in and out of these tiny teacups. So I can't imagine it would be somewhat of a stretch. The other thing that we want to mention is the aesthetically different things about the different versions of this attraction. So Disneyland Paris has like a big glass sculpture. Almost, I think it's glass. They have like a uh, sculpture over it. Sculpture is okay. not the right word. Disneyland is open air. Which we love. Disney World and Tokyo, though, have this special version with a giant teacup in the middle with the Dormouse peeking his head out every so often. So it's interesting, you know, you get the different aspects of it. Obviously, Magic Kingdoms could not be open air just based on how much it rains in Florida. But that Disneyland one, I mean, that's a mood. Especially when they light up the lanterns at night. It is a beautiful area. I mean, that has to be my favorite part of the teacups, just the lanterns. And when we watched the clip from the movie of this scene, they have all the lanterns, you know, and everything above it. So it's very similar, which I can appreciate. It's just kind of taking it from the movie. For sure. So a big piece of storytelling that I think is super important to this attraction is understanding the source material. I think, for one, Alice in Wonderland is a very misunderstood movie, novel, character. I'm going to go to bat for Alice, I guess is what I'm saying. You you already seem skeptical. You don't like her at all. It's not that I don't like it. It's just that growing up, I didn't like anything that was like disorienting or odd, um, like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Okay, get out. We're going to have a problem. You're lucky it's your birthday. <laughs> I'm just saying, I personally, I didn't like movies like this because it was kind of confusing. Like you didn't understand what was going on or why all of these things were happening. And I just didn't relate to that as a kid. I will go ahead and preface and say I love the animated version. I also do enjoy the first live action Tim Burton version. I do not enjoy the second one through the looking glass, but I do enjoy the first one. And I like, I actually like Johnny Depp's version of the Mad Hatter. Controversial opinions. You just had to share that with the world. Well, I feel like it will maybe, if I have some really bad takes, then maybe people just, they'll just discount and be like, well, he likes the movie. (laughs) Okay. So this was an 1865 novel written by English author Lewis Carroll. Lewis Carroll, I didn't even realize that's not his real name. That's a pseudonym. For Charles Dodgson. Lewis Carroll rolls off the tongue a little bit better, I think. Oh, absolutely. It follows an adventurous young girl named Alice who falls through a rabbit hole into a subterranean fantasy world. And this book or this collection of novels are considered like pillars of this genre called literary nonsense, which I think is appropriate now understanding a little bit about the story. Oh, absolutely. Do you want to read more in the literary nonsense genre? No, but I feel like I have quite a few students who probably would enjoy that. And so if you think about this book written in the 1860s, so then by the time that Walt is a young boy, this 
this would have been a staple of the literary world. And so Walt read these stories as a young boy. And he grew up with them. He eventually got the rights to them. And he first dipped his toes into the Alice stories by making the Alice comedies, which were a series of shorts and considered to be one of Walt's early successes. And so what they did was they depicted this real-life actor as Alice and put her into this cartoon world. So from just a movie and a company standpoint, obviously that's monumental because that opens the door for things like Mary Poppins. Oh, absolutely. That's the first thing that it made me think of, honestly. So because of this early success using this piece of literary work, Walt was said to have loved Alice in Wonderland throughout his entire life because he had this you know, warm and fuzzy feeling because it opened a lot of doors early in his career. And basically from the time he created those Alice comedies, he knew that he was going to make a full-length animated film based off Alice in Wonderland. So he considered a live-action slash animated version thinking like Mary Poppins. And it just didn't work out. It wasn't timed correctly, and they couldn't get it off the ground. But the big thing that put the nail in that stake was Paramount released a live-action adaptation of this movie in 1933. So then Walt wanted to go in a completely different uh, direction. By the late 1930s, he had tried to resurrect it again, but World War II happened in the early 1940s. So it, again, couldn't off the ground, couldn't get off the ground. Third time's a charm. In 1947, he started working on it again, and after four years of work, he got it to release in 1951. However... The movie that we saw in 1951 was not what he initially wanted to do. He, of course, was very familiar with both the novels that Lewis Carroll had written about this, and he knew that they were too complex and too long to be able to fit those into an animated film, especially an animated film intended for children. So he basically decided to pick and choose scenes from Alice in Wonderland, and from Through the Looking Glass, and hodgepodge them together to create the story that we saw in the movie. But most notably, the Jabberwock scene was cut from the animated version. We did see that resurrected in the live-action version and Tim Burton's version, but originally that was supposed to happen in the animated version as well. That is so interesting because I never knew that it was two separate books. And I don't know if that's just me being, you know, off in my own little world, but I never made that connection that that's why there were two Tim Burton films, because there were two separate books, and it's following both of those stories. And the the literary works themselves, the novels, I mean, they're they're wild, and they're crazy, and they're very tough to get through. I've tried to read them multiple times, and I... I think I've made it through once. And it's very difficult to keep track of everything because Lewis Carroll was kind of crazy. I mean, there's no other way around it. He was crazy in this world that he created was just complete chaos. So Walt kind of had all of these characters and ideas of how he wanted to build this and put it together. And he kind of just made this hodgepodge and created this, this solid story. But he did take one 
liberty from the novels. And he created one character out of his own mind. Or I don't know if he actually created it or maybe it was an animator, a storyboard person. But the talking doorknob does not exist in the novels. And I'm trying to think about the story. I'm not as familiar with Alice in Wonderland because I refused to watch it as a kid. But, I mean, he is somewhat of an important character, right? Because he's there when she's trying to figure out how to, like, shrink and grow and shrink and grow, correct? Yeah. Is that, like, his major claim to fame? Well, yeah. He's one of the first characters that she meets once she falls into the rabbit hole. Is so is it just so that like she has that person, like that first face to come in contact with? Yeah. And I don't know exactly how it happens in the novels of how she makes that transition happen. Um, but yeah, the talking doorknob, he Disney created it for this story. Okay. So all of this is kind of to lead up to say that Alice in Wonderland was not a hit and probably still is not considered like it's not in many people's top 10 Disney movies or no. anything like that. Mainly, I think because of the time that passed, you know, if he had released this in the 1930s, maybe it would have been a hit. But by the time he released it in the 50s, it was just a different ball game that he was dealing with, which lots more of competition. And people had seen the other types of movies that he could create back from the Snow White days up until now. And people were very familiar with those Alice comedies as well. So I think it was a hard transition because people love those. They maybe expected something similar. That's fair. So when you say Alice comedies, I mean, were they humorous? Like, were they meant to make you laugh? No, comedy is more like a type of, it's like a short. Okay. I would think like a theatrical use of the word comedy instead of like a ha-ha funny comedy. Is it bad that I also thought like ha-ha funny? Is that a way to describe something? Well, I mean, I guess so. Okay. But yeah, I mean, there was no speaking in the Alice comedies. It's all just music and depictions of this girl in the animated world that they had created for her. But the other thing that lays and goes into why this wasn't a hit is that you think about if this first written in the 1860s, by the time this movie releases in 1951, there's almost 90 years that this is this had become a staple. I mean, so many people were familiar with these stories. And so if they're familiar with the novels, it's one of those situations, the movie's almost never as good as the book. Which is surprising because we just talked about how it was so hard to read the books. It and I think that is maybe more of a product of that we are so far removed. You and I and people today are so far removed from this Victorian age era of speaking in this old oh. English style of speaking. That's why I have trouble getting through it because I'm looking up definitions of words Constantly. And Lewis Carroll also made up a bunch of words Imagine in Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> so it, it's, to me, it's way too complex. To, you For can, just like an easy read. Yeah, it's not an easy read. You can read it and you can get the gist of what's going on. 
But if you're reading it trying to fit it into the context of the movie, you're you're not going to be able to. Which makes sense because he, like you mentioned, he had to make adjustments to fit, you know, his animated vision, I guess. So, although the movie was not a hit, the biggest takeaway from the film was that the music was a hit. And it won some awards for this, but mainly I'm Late and the Unbirthday Song both kind of transcended the movie and that's what kind of people latched onto more than anything because people left singing those two songs in particular. And I think that's the reason why maybe it could hang on and be worthy of getting an attraction some days because both of those people can, you know, at least recite a couple words of them. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's just something about, it seems like, Disney movies and music. I mean, they just go hand in hand. And again, it ties into the storytelling, like we mentioned earlier, that that music makes all the difference. So it's funny how the same concept applied to both the ride and the movie, that that's one of the like standout features. So you want to get weird with me for a minute? Just a minute. That's all I can give you. Okay. So I want... When I did my research for this, where my mind kept going is, like, what does this attraction mean? And I think a lot of it goes back to the conversation that we had earlier, talking about that when Alice approaches the March Hare and the Mad Hatter, and there she comes in the middle of this unbirthday party, it is super confusing, and it's, 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 it's inviting, but it's not inviting. It's kooky. You're not really sure what's going on. But from a literary standpoint, it's probably no secret to anybody who studied this or can think about this as a literary work. The entire novel is a gigantic metaphor. And that's kind of how Lewis Carroll wrote it. And so there's two points that I want to bring up about how this was intended to be interpreted. And we can kind of abstractly try to put these into this. Disneyland flat ride, if you'll bear with me. Will you entertain me for the moment? I'm ready. Okay, so if you think about in the Victorian age when Alice in Wonderland was written, the formal tea party was a function in which social norms and cultural rules were kind of like the highest importance. And there was nothing more sophisticated or more proper than a tea party. And we can see that in all kinds of you know, different movies. I'm thinking about The Crown because we watch that. I mean, a tea party is a very important deal. You get dressed up for it. You mind your manners. You show up on time. You show up on time. You only speak about certain topics at a tea party. And so there's all kinds of things. And so Lewis Carroll had that in mind of basically flipping that entire idea on its head of saying this Tea Party is an environment where we're literally celebrating nothing. (laughs) We're celebrating the existence of this day being not significant. And we're celebrating being messy, being loud, being crazy, being fill in the blank of every being rude. And so it was basically an invitation 
for the reader at that time that you can break out of social norms, that you are allowed to push the boundaries. You are allowed to kind of not give in to society's pressures. So if you think about who would that speak to, reading that as a young boy is Walt Disney. Yeah. And so to me, I think that's kind of the big significant thing here. No, I don't think you should really think about next time you're writing Mad Tea Party that I'm not going to give in to society's norms. <laughs> but to a certain extent, I think that is true. Well, that. you can break the mold. You know, you can Disneyfy it, you know, that you are capable of more or, you know, you don't have to follow these strict guidelines kind of thing. And it is very much portrayed in the movie because there's that one split second where – this is only on my mind because we just watched it – but where the Mad Hatter, like, yells at Alice for – well, it's very rude to sit down without being invited. And he's like preaching these things. And then just in a snap, he's like, never mind. Yeah. And so I think that if you if you just think about it, like that's that's what the reader was supposed to experience in this day and time where he wrote this of properness and manners. And, you know, you fit into this square box. Lewis Carroll was saying that you can break outside of this box. And Walt Disney is one of the greatest examples of all time of not fitting in a box and of pushing boundaries and not allowing his mind to be shaped and molded by what society thought he should do. So just something to ponder. I like that. So that's part one. You said you had two. So what's the second mind? This is even weirder. Oh, all right. We're going to get weirder. The Dormouse is a metaphor kind of within the mad tea party metaphor. And again, so the Dormouse is the little mouse character that at the magic kingdom, the Walt Disney world version, you can sometimes see pop out of the teapot. He's not significant in the movies by any means. You can see him. He has a few speaking roles, but he's not like a main player. Yeah. And so the Dormouse has kind of been used as a representative for a long time. He was even used as a metaphor and an example, not the particular Dormouse in Alice in Wonderland, but the Dormouse in general was used by Karl Marx in a lot of his writing and essays and speeches. The Dormouse is a representation of the lower class or the poor. And it's kind of a microcosm of that, he is caught basically against his will by the Mad Hatter and the March Hare because they keep him in this pot of treacle, which I didn't know what treacle was, but it's essentially honey, like a sweetener for your, for your tea. tea. I guess our British friends might be mad at me. Maybe I mispronounced they're, it. They're laughing at us probably. But anyway, he's kept in this pot kind of against his will and it was thought that this treacle is like, that's what's holding him back. Saying that the upper class or the wealthy are constantly suppressing the lower class and the poor. And that's what the Dormouse is representing because he's he's basically drunk on it. He's he's His mind is not allowed to reach the same level that the March Hare and the Mad Hatter can 
where they're crazy. They can. I was hide. gonna say that's saying a lot because who knows what they're thinking. But the Dormouse's mind is not allowed to get to that point because he's being suppressed. Hmm. You like it? Don't like it? No, I mean, I can appreciate the metaphor. I can appreciate that. I don't necessarily know how that ties into the attraction, but it is an interesting, just something that I didn't know, I guess. Yeah, it's harder to pull that one into the attraction because Disney is already seen as kind of elitist and, you know, everybody deals with that of saying like, it, Disney is so expensive. How can you afford to go there? So it's harder to fit this narrative into the attraction. But I do think it's important that you understand that that's where that character came from. And that's why Lewis Carroll put him in there in the first place was to represent that. So there's kind of two different mindsets going on, but almost in the same direction as well between the Tea Party and the Dormouse. Yeah. You with me? Did I lose you? I I was more with you in the first half, but I do think it's interesting to put both of them together in the context of the Tea Party. And if you haven't watched that scene in the movie... And for a long time, I think you should, because it is quite interesting to watch. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense that if if Walt wanted to do a flat ride, this is the scene to draw inspiration from. Because the whole point of a flat ride is to spin. The whole point of spinning is to be disoriented and get dizzy. And there's nothing more perfect to to put you into the movie and make you feel that same way that a character would than the tea party in Alice in Wonderland. And it's still done in a fun way to where it's not extremely intimidating, you know, because you could say, Oh, well, you know, Snow White is disoriented, you know, when she's running and stuff. And we talked about that when we discussed Snow White's scary adventures, but that's not quite the same still like fun loving disoriented, I guess. So let's get to our listener stories and scores, and then we'll do our Neverland scores and final thoughts at the very end. So from our listeners, our friend Sarah said, I give this ride a four. It's a ride I will only go on if there's not a long line, but it's okay if I miss it. Our friend Sean said he also gave it a four. It's fun. The theming is fun, but it's nothing you can't ride anywhere else. I honestly think the theming and the location are what make it better than the average teapot type ride our friend Catherine gave it a 4.25 it's honestly a ride i haven't done in years but i love to watch others on it i do not do well on spinning rides like this and that's something that we mentioned that's something that we missed sorry is that there is wonderful people watching in this area oh absolutely i mean and the seating is already there but like on the brick wall that it's already kind of built into that area yeah, in the uh, Magic Kingdom version. In the Magic Kingdom. I can't remember. Is there as much seating around the Disneyland? I feel like it's a lot more open. I feel like in Disneyland, everything is a little more open. Yeah. What? No. Open? Well, as far as it's so small, they can't just put a random brick wall there. Oh. Okay. I skipped what you're saying. I thought you were saying like more space. Like, no, not like wide open spaces, but just like. You're not going to put a brick wall up because then you're not going to have anywhere to walk. Okay. And then lastly, our friend Erica gave it a 7.5. 
She said, I am really shocked. It's as high as it is for me. It's not a favorite for me because I get sick, but I have compounded memory after memory of this ride as a kid and teenager of myself, then as adults, and then with my kids starting as young as a few months old on it. Because there's no line, we would always just go on it if we were walking by, but also we always had a spinning cup versus non-spinning cup because the if the wrong person ended up on the wrong cup, that was bad news for everyone. <laughs> That's probably very important, especially for large families, of making sure that you pair people correctly with each other. Oh, it's funny, but it's not funny because it's. I mean, it's the same thing that we experience when we write it too. Like you do have to be, you have to have that conversation. It's essential. You have to be in agreement. Yeah. Yes. Or then it's just a battle of strength. Of who can spin versus making it not spin. Yeah. So let's get to our Neverland scores. Our scores were fairly similar this week. We're a little bit off. I gave it a 5.5. Which is above average. It is above average. I was surprised I rated it that high. And you gave it a 4.75. Way to steal my thunder. It's my birthday. Well, sorry. I gave it a 4.75. Shocking. Um. We both rated it really high in nostalgia. I gave it full marks saying that it I feel just like a kid again on it. You gave it 0.75. Reminds me of the old days. We both gave it really high marks for smile factor. Um, you said makes my heart happy. I said smiling from ear to ear. We rated it the same on thrill factor, which I thought was interesting. We both gave it a 0.75, which makes sense because we always ride together and we spin in them. If yes. we didn't, if we were non-spinners, then we might rake it lower. But I think it is, to a certain extent, it's thrilling for everyone because I feel like it's whatever your tolerance is. So if you're not a spinner, but you're still on it, the fact that you're spinning is still somewhat thrilling. Yeah, well, I I can see that. That makes sense. Uh, we rated it poorly in all of the same areas, fast pass worthiness, standby worthiness, and immersion. Which, immersion, I might, I could be persuaded to rate it higher than I did. We both gave it a 0.25. Unfortunately, you mentioned, and I agree, like the dark ride, Alice in Wonderland, which we have not talked about yet, does give you more of that immersive experience. And again, it just kind of plays into the type of ride. A dark ride is obviously meant to give you more of that story than this flat ride. So in a way, it's an unfair advantage, but I mean, it's on the rubric. It is on the rubric. I want to circle back to what we said at the very beginning of this episode, is that sometimes there's beauty in simplicity. And I think that this is so simple. However, it is a depiction of the story of the movie. And I think that can easily go unnoticed. If you're not careful that you can just say, hey, there's teacups in this movie and there's teacups here. But if you don't actually think about the particular scene, the particular song, the particular characters and how everything unfolds is I think that, you know, that was always Walt's goal was to put you into the story. And this does that. Maybe not in as an elaborate way as the Haunted Mansion or the Pirates of the Caribbean, or some of these other, like, you know, super rich storytelling. 
but it does accomplish that. It does. And I agree it's understated, but if you write it mindfully, which is the goal of our storytelling series, I think you can still get that same feeling. And if you tie it back to the movie and thinking about what Alice felt, I think it it does hit the nail on the head. And it's an appropriate theme for the attraction. I almost think that because it is so easily compared to other carnival style flat rides that it's dismissed very easily. Whereas, you know, if they had come up with their own new ride system, even if it was just as simple, that it would maybe be viewed in a different way. But in a way, again, I'm not very familiar with ride mechanics for these flat rides, but the way that they did it, where you have the two different platforms, I don't think it's cutting edge per se, but I do think it enhances the ride. But I see what you're saying. I know what you mean. Yep. Anything else you want to add for the Mad Tea Party? I don't think so. All right. So to wrap this up, next Thursday, this Thursday, this Thursday. is episode number 250. Oh, man. So we've been teasing it for a while. We teased it at the beginning of the year. Restaurant and dining storytelling is the next area that we want to dive into. And so that is exactly what we're going to do. It's very fitting. It's a good way to kick off episode number 250. And we're excited. We're going to open it up with a bang. um, And we're going to talk about Disney Springs, which is going to set the scene for... A lot of restaurants to come. Yep. And so just to whet your appetite a little bit, for those of you who don't know, Disney Springs has a super detailed and rich story that is one of those 99% of the people don't realize what the story is when they go in there. You mean it's not just for shopping? It is. <laughs> but there is an underlying story that we're going to try to highlight, and that will, like you said, lay the groundwork for a lot of these other discussions that we want to have about the dining options at Disney Springs. So we're excited. We'll be back on Thursday and I hope everyone has a very merry unbirthday. Except for you. Except for me with a real birthday. And DCA. And if it's your real birthday, happy birthday. Thank you for listening. We'll chat with you on Thursday. Thank you for listening to Detour to Neverland. Make sure you subscribe and leave us an iTunes review if you enjoyed the show. Between episodes, you can find us on Instagram at Detour to Neverland or visit DetourToNeverland.com. We appreciate you letting us be part of your day. See you real soon.